So uh, hopefully you grabbed a bulletin on your way in. Uh, and on the front of it, you'll notice that we printed uh, an icon on here of the transfiguration. And it seemed especially fitting to choose this one to share because this was made by a Ukrainian iconographer, Ivanka Demchuk. Uh, her Etsy page is linked to in the bulletin, although needless to say, I don't know how that's functioning right now. Um, but may this guide you in your devotion on this day. Um, these are, f are excellent to take home uh, during the week. Uh, they can act as a good sort of reminder of the service. These can be a good devotional guide throughout your weeks, uh, and especially with artwork like this on the front of it. Uh, also, tomorrow night, we're going to be holding a prayer vigil here in this room at 8 p.m. Uh, for Ukraine. And obviously, this is a last-minute announcement, uh, so we understand if you're not able to make it, but if you are, please do come. Um, on that note, let's pray. O God, from you comes all truth, all peace, and all wisdom. Stir up the hearts of all people with true love of peace. Protect the vulnerable. Shield the sick. Comfort the grieving. And make all wars cease. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace and the King of Glory. Amen. Amen. So Transfiguration Sunday is the last Sunday in the season of Epiphany. So uh, if, if you've been here every week, you've heard me talk about Epiphany being the season of light and of life. And we've been celebrating that with uh, exploding light on our altar. And this is the Sunday in which it's now uh, breaking forth into the sanctuary. Those of you up against the wall, don't light your hair on fire, please. There's candles that are there. And then also on your way out uh, at our two welcome tables, there's one in the narthex, and one in the lobby. On your way out, we've got just little tea, uh, teacup candles, tea lights. I don't know the names of these things. <laughs> little tea lights. Uh, so take those home. It's just a simple reminder of the light of this season, that it is a season of mission, a season of outreach, a season in which we carry with us the good news of Jesus Christ wherever we may go. Uh, some of the, the panels in the room, the, the stained glass, tell the stories that we've been sharing during this season of Epiphany. So you'll see there's the panel there of the water being turned to wine. Uh, Bart preached on that passage and reminded us that Jesus came and encourages us to celebrate the goodness of creation. Also, you'll see that there's uh, uh, chains and crutches that are being broken, uh, telling the story of Jesus healing the sick, uh, healing the paralytics. He cares about us holistically, mind, body, and soul. And you also see the, the two fish there. I'm pretty sure that's signifying Jesus calling the disciples and saying, I will make you fishers of men. And there we are reminded that Jesus invites all of us to participate in his great mission, that we are um, very blessed and honored and encouraged to be included in the work of Jesus Christ. The good news of Jesus is for the poor, for the lonely, and for the brokenhearted. And his desire is to bring men and women into wholeness, forgiveness, and abundant life. So Transfiguration Sunday marks this great shift, not only in the life of Jesus, but also in the life of the church calendar. 
So this is the day in which Jesus grabs some of his closest friends. They climb up a mountain and his entire appearance begins to radiate. He transforms before them. He just emits glory from his body. Can you imagine what that would have looked like? I wonder, too, if, if only his body was, was the only thing that was affected or if, you know, ripples of light just caused all of creation around him to sort of reflect that glory and shimmer and shake in various ways. I don't think our imaginations can fully grasp what that moment would have looked like. There we see not just his, his physical appearance, it's an indication of his perfect character, his perfect love, his beautiful and pure heart. The disciples who were there, and uh, they, they were very confused, as the scripture tells us, uh, but they hear the voice of God speak from a cloud. And this isn't the first time that they've heard this voice speak. They also heard this voice of God speak over Jesus at his baptism, declaring words of love over Jesus, his son. This is my son, my chosen one. And Jesus is there. He's, he's talking with Moses and Elijah, Elijah. And did you catch what they're talking about? They're talking about Jesus' departure. Now, our English Bibles don't totally uh, translate that word correctly. In the original Greek, it is the word exodus. They were discussing Jesus' exodus. It reminds us of that great story of the Old Testament when God rescued the, Egyptian, or rescued the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. So like I said, this is a great shift in Jesus' journey. From here on out, Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem, where he will accomplish a great and newer exodus. His glory will be put into action there. He will be challenging the forces of evil and darkness and death. And from that point on, his word will echo throughout the world. This is God's son. Listen to him. So you see, friends, the transfiguration reminds us with bright light and loud thunder and booming voices and thick smoke that it is not just any human being who hangs upon the cross. This is God Almighty. He is Emmanuel, God with us, the King of glory. But the New Testament doesn't stop there with this story. There's more. They make a rather bold claim a borderline offensive claim, an interesting claim, a curious claim, one that's mythic in the way in which it sounds and resonates with us. It's a tremendous mystery. They say that here on the mountain, we actually catch a glimpse of our own destiny, of our own um, hope of glory. And that brings us to Paul's words from 2 Corinthians, which we will be spending some time in today. So there, Paul writes to the Corinthians, and he uses the metaphor of a veil, pulling the imagery from Moses, that passage from Exodus that we read. And he uses the metaphor of a veil to describe spiritual blindness. And if you think he's being sort of judgmental, especially to the Jews, he's describing what he himself once was. A man who was unable to see that the crucified Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, was, in fact, God's Messiah. And when the veil is lifted, amazing things happen. He says in verse 18, We all with unveiled faces behold the glory of the Lord, and we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Isn't that remarkable? 
Paul is saying that we ourselves are being transformed into the likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's the same exact word that's used to describe Jesus' transformation. Paul is now using it to describe us. Now, we don't become highly reflective, radioactive human beings who blind others around us. Although, what's life going to look like in the new creation? Maybe we will. I don't know. But what he means here is that our likeness, our character, our love, our hearts will be transformed to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. That we are able to resist temptation and sin. That we are able to love others in the same way that Jesus loved others as depicted in our stained glass. That we are to love God more purely. That we become more and more and more like Jesus. But how? How does this happen? How does this happen? Well, I would like to talk about seven invitations for our transformation. And no doubt, this seven is not a complete list. You'll leave here thinking of more. But in these seven invitations, I want us to be able to answer the question, how do we become like Jesus? It's kind of like this. It's, it's like, imagine walking into a restaurant, a very fancy restaurant, one that you've saved up lots of money for, and you, you go and you sit down, you know, you're wearing your, your best clothes that you have, and you look over and you see another table there, and there's a party there of people having the best of time. They've ordered almost everything on the menu. They are, you know, clinking their glasses with one another. They're celebrating. They're, they're putting their food on forks and, and sharing it with one another, which is kind of gross, but that's what you do when you're celebrating, right? They're just having fun. You know, they're getting the best beverages, the best food. And so you're sitting there with the menu in front of you, and you tell the waiter, what are they having? You know, tell me, what's, what's on their table right now? And so that's what I want to do today, is I want to walk us through an invitation to a beautiful menu where you will be able to partake of the glory of Jesus Christ himself. So seven invitations. The first is to follow him into baptism. Follow him into baptism. In baptism, our souls are washed clean and we are mystically united with Christ In fact, in a few moments, we're going to be inviting families up here and welcoming their children into the household of God. Just as the ancient Jews would circumcise their young children, so we of the new covenant welcome in through the sacrament of baptism our children into the household of God. They are claimed by the church. As we read last week, the church was given authority by Jesus to forgive sins, and that is exactly what we do here in the waters of baptism. And this begins the journey. This is the first invitation for your life to be transformed into the likeness of God. The second is to meditate on his word. To meditate on his word. In studying the stories and the prayers and the promises of scripture, we, the people of God, learn more about Jesus and are transformed into his likeness. The word of God reveals our sin. It assures us of our salvation. And it blesses us with the hope of everlasting life that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, some of you come from traditions where this second one is discussed as the only pathway to discipleship. We've had conversations about this. In fact, one of the scholars that I read in preparation for this, he, you know, he, answers, he asks the question rhetorically himself, how are we transformed into the likeness of God? And he says this, he says, it's not mystical, it's educational. 
And I was like, oh, I was so on board with you up until that point. It's not mystical, but it's educational. Now, do we read the Bible and do we immerse ourselves? Of course. You know, as we read in Acts 2.42, we, like the early church, are devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the prayers, you know, to the teachings of the Old and New Testaments. That is, of course, where we become more and more like Jesus. But there's so much more on the menu than just that. We are mystically incorporated in baptism by the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, the passage from 2 Corinthians talks about the Holy Spirit and the role of the Holy Spirit. If that's not mystical transformation into the likeness of God, I don't know what is. So praise the Lord for the sacraments that we're given. Thirdly, participate in worship. Through our time together in song and confession and prayer and sacrificial giving and petition, Our hearts are elevated. We're brought into the throne room of God, as our liturgy reminds us every single week. Worship is also spiritual warfare. It's when we join ourselves with Christians around the globe and we offer up uh, our prayers and petitions on their behalf of those who don't have a voice, of those who are especially vulnerable, and we thunder the throne room of God with those prayers as well, knowing that in doing so, we are united with our brothers and sisters and with the concerns of heaven. Fourth, we fellowship with brothers and sisters. One of my favorite stories of scripture is the story of healing of the paralytic. Do you remember that one? Where a group of friends come to a house where Jesus is, there's no room, and so they dig a hole in the roof, and they descend, and they they lower their friend to the feet of Jesus. And do you remember what Jesus says? He says, seeing their faith He forgives the sins of the man. The man does absolutely nothing to deserve Christ's forgiveness. He's literally motionless. And it's because of the fellowship of his friends, it's because of their love for one another and their trust in Jesus, their faith in Jesus, that the man receives forgiveness of sins. So our fellowship of one another As we come and we gather here, we in our own lives have high points and low points in our faith. And it's important for us, especially in those low moments, to come here and to gather with one another and borrow the faith of not just those who are here, but the faith of those who've entrusted us with this holy liturgy. We lean upon our ancient mothers and fathers in the faith. And we, by doing so, by participating with one another and with them, are transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Fifthly, we serve in acts of mercy We put our faith into action. We serve the poor. We visit prisoners. We care for the orphans. We open up our homes to those who are in need. We care for those who society often forgets and marginalizes. In other words, we love people the same way that Jesus does. We do Jesus things. And in doing so, our hearts align with the heart of God. We train our heart through our actions. Sixth, we offer to him the Lord our suffering. We offer to him our suffering. Jesus says, pick up your cross daily and follow me. Now as comfortable Anglicans, yes, we are comfortable Anglicans, but as comfortable Americans, comfortable American Anglicans, let's just keep it at that. We'll say that was a, a supernatural Freudian slip. <laughs> as comfortable American Anglicans, we do not like hearing that. To offer our suffering to God as a way of transformation? Like, let's focus on the good things. Let's focus on the the feasting with one another, right? But we follow the crucified Messiah, 
We follow the wounded healer, the lamb who is slain. Now, God does not call our suffering, but he, is, he does promise to be present in our suffering. Often it is in our own pain, our own betrayal, our own loneliness that we feel visited by the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in those moments, we align ourselves with who he is and what he has done as the suffering servant. Now, I don't know about you, but these invitations, this, this uh, menu that we've set before you, obviously we've not had enough time to really do deep dives into each of those items, but I don't really know how those are sitting with you. Some of you might be thinking fellowship with other Christians. Have you met church people? They are weird. Why would I do that? <laughs> Some of you might be thinking, offer God my suffering. Are you serious? Suffering only causes me to be more resentful, more angry. Acts of service, study the Bible, who has time for that these days? I barely have time to make meals for myself and my family. So indeed, granted, if we pull from our own strength, the path to becoming like Jesus is steep and it is an impossible journey. That brings me to the seventh and final invitation. Jesus says, taste and see the goodness of the Lord. Jesus promises to meet us at his holy table. He says in the Gospels, I am the bread of life. Elsewhere, he says, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So here at the table, we remember that we receive the forgiveness of sins, and our hearts are fed by the grace of Jesus Christ. He reaches out and he touches us. He sustains us. He builds us up in mystical ways that cannot be measured. This is food for the journey that we receive here at the table. And it reminds us of that great hope that we have, of that great feast when we all will someday celebrate with him face to face, completely unveiled. So how do you become more like Jesus? Baptism, studying the word, participating in worship, fellowshipping with one another, acts of mercy and service in our suffering and meeting him at the table. In each of these things, we become more and more like our savior, our brother, Jesus Christ. We start to care for the same things that he cares for, the poor, the lonely, and the brokenhearted. And our heart becomes, or his heart becomes our heart. His glory becomes our glory. So there's actually one more uh, invitation that I would like to extend to you. So this week we enter into Lent. Wednesday's Ash Wednesday, and then the first Sunday of Lent. And so this, this coming week, the church calendar is going to be slowing down as Christians around the globe contemplate the mysteries of God's deep love for humanity. And so here at Restoration, we're going to be um, practicing Ash Wednesday. Also throughout Lent, we're going to be holding evening uh, prayer services and simple soup suppers. You can see our calendar for those. On Sunday mornings, there's going to be a special uh, Sunday teaching series called Ashes in Art. And then that final week when the church calendar slows down to real time, we will journey with Jesus to the cross. And these aren't just events that fill our calendar. These are invitations to spiritually participate with Jesus Christ in his redemption of the world. We slow down. We join with the ancient church 
and we walk with Jesus, forming us more and more into his likeness. Please pray with me. Almighty God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain, grant that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.